So what are some of the trends with breaches we've been seeing in the healthcare sector? I'm Marianne Kolbesek-McGee, Executive Editor of Information Security Media Group. I met him, 17, speaking with Dan Berger, VP at security consulting firm Synergistic. Dan will be speaking to us about the latest breach and other cyber trends identified in the recently released 7th Annual Cybersecurity Report from Redspin, a unit of Synergistic. Hi, Dan. Good morning, Marianne. So now, Dan, I understand that your research has shown that there was a huge increase in the number of healthcare providers victimized by hackers in 2016. What sort of hacker attacks are we talking about specifically? I know there's been a lot of talk about ransomware, but what else have you been seeing? So, Marianne, the biggest trend for 2016 has really been that healthcare providers are under attack, and they're under attack in a number of ways. The most striking way is the fact that hacking incidents at healthcare providers increased 320% over 2015. So it's this enormous increase. And the interesting part about that is that although those have been represented by some large attacks or sub-attacks on large providers, a large variety of those have occurred at smaller providers. So I, I think the takeaway is that hackers now see pro- healthcare providers as being soft targets and they're going after. If you add to that the ransomware attacks, which don't necessarily get reflected in the breach report, you've also seen ransomware attacks at at providers as well, the most notable being Hollywood Presbyterian, which kind of ground the industry to a halt. But there was another dozen or so reported incidents of ransomware providers throughout the year as well. Who's behind all these attacks? Are we seeing a variety of different sources of these attacks? And what's going on? Why is the healthcare sector suddenly being realized as being a soft target? I think these are actual hackers looking to monetize the information. I, I think in 2015, we saw the, the, the very, you know, the enormous attacks, say, on Anthem, where you would suspect that a nation state was behind that. These are attacks that are attempting to monetize the, monetize the information stolen. And what's occurring is that there's been a kind of a rush to, to grab as much information as possible, in fact, flood the black market with it, which in turn has now actually caused a decrease in the value of a health record on the black market. And so when you're a hacker, you're sitting there thinking, okay, so what do I do now? My, my, you know, my price per record just went down. What's the next kind of way in which or method that I can use to monetize? And so that's what's led to ransomware. It's actually a, a flood of information on the, on the black market of protected health information and, and, and other types of personal, personally identifiable information. And it's what it's caused hackers to do is say, how can I monetize this situation? And what I call a ransomware attack is that it's, it's an attack on availability. And it's, it's particularly onerous for these providers because it can actually grind operations to a halt. So really rendering them unable to care for patients, which is their main objective, of course. So, and you'll see ransomware, you know, you see, saw with Hollywood Presbyterian, you saw this ridiculous report in the media at first that there was $3.4 million in Bitcoin demanded. They ended up paying $17,000 in Bitcoin. See, but for the hacker's point of view, it doesn't really matter what they charge as long as they get something. The other thing that led to ransomware has been the emergence and acceptability of Bitcoin because you've got an anonymous currency, which is virtually untraceable. So for law enforcement, once uh, a provider decides to make a payment, they really have no way of, uh, they certainly have no way of tracing the payment. They they may have some hints from the type of attack that, that was launched, but not from the payment itself. After ransomware, you know, what sorts of other kinds of attacks are we starting to see? And maybe what sort of attacks haven't we seen that we could see? 
Exactly. So you're going to see continued attacks, and this is what really worries me. You're going to see continued attacks on availability, and they may be different different types of availability attacks. We've already seen an instance where there's multi-variants of ransomware now. They're just exploding, and, and we're seeing something called ransomware as a service, where fairly non-technical people actually buy a ransomware kit and launch the kit, and they really don't need very much technical expertise at all. And what they do is they launch the kit on behalf of the originating hacker, and they split the profits with them. So the potential for the explosion of these attacks is enormous because you don't really need any real real technical hacking ability to launch the attack. So that's one. Another one that I fear personally is we saw an attack last year. It was a a DDoS attack, a distributed denial of service. And we saw that on Dyn, which is a domain name provider. And the issue that Dyn faced was that the attackers used all types of different types of Internet of Things, effectively, you know, Internet connect the devices to launch bogus traffic in so much traffic that it ground the whole network to a halt. Now, if you think about a typical hospital environment, you've now got medical devices. And in some cases, in a medium-sized hospital, you may have thousands of medical devices that are internet connected. So there's a possibility that a hacker could use those devices and infiltrate them, not so much to cause patient harm, but to cause them to start generating traffic and, and launching that on the network and, and against effectively taking the network offline by, by flooding it with traffic. So I would be on the lookout for a DDoS-style attack on a hospital launched from internal devices. And what can healthcare organizations do to sort of prevent falling victim to something like this involving their medical devices? So with medical devices, the, the biggest thing, and it's really the start point for medical device security, the first thing, it sounds, sounds kind, of, kind of obvious, but the first thing is to have a process for inventorying the devices. A lot of these medical devices enter hospitals at different points, you know, from different departments, different, different, uh, for different use cases. And until you have, I mean, the goal is to have a centralized repository of these devices, but until you have a process that will actually put that into place, you're, you're not going to get to the, to the end state, which is to have, a, have an inventory of all the devices. So the first thing is you got to know where they, where they all are. You've also got to run vulnerability tests on them, and it, that's hard to do because th- these are devices that are, you need to create kind of a lab environment to test them and to make sure that none of them have any type of exploitable vulnerability that, that you're aware of. That doesn't protect you against a zero-day type of attack, but you at least, least got to identify them, know physically where they are, know which ones are online or offline, and know what the results of a standard vulnerability scan tell you about those devices. What kind of mistakes do you see organizations making with ID and access management that perhaps leave them vulnerable to some of these breaches that we've been seeing, whether they're cyber attacks, but the insiders as well? So one thing is there's still an awful lot of default passwords being used. Um, so, so certain types of, whether it's devices or networking gear that come into environments, oftentimes, believe it or not, the, um, the default password doesn't get changed. And default passwords are freely available on the internet. You can look up almost any device and, and figure out what default password it ships with. Again, another thing is the standard mode of attack still for these ransomware initiatives have been through phishing attacks on individuals. So again, education is very important, but I'd like to make one point about education, and that is that 
there's a there's a tendency over the last year or two for experts to say, well, it's it's the dumb user, you know, it's the dumb user problem that the user shouldn't have clicked on the attachment, the sh- user shouldn't have clicked on the link. In many cases, it may be someone's job function to click on attachments. That may be what they do for a living. Think of HR when HR gets a resume that's an attachment. If you're in HR at a hospital, you're going to click on attachment, and so you can't just assume that we'll say, well, no one can click on attachments, and then have that. Got to have a lot of other protections in place, a really multi-layered defense with web filtering and and keep your patches up to date on the different types of software. Now going back to the report, what other surprises or new trends are you seeing based on the analysis? So again, this was a little bit off the normal track of the breach report, but the thing that stuck out at me particularly about 2016 was the number of enforcement activities that took place. There were, I think, 13 different OCR-based enforcement actions resulting in settlements, uh, financial settlements, and some with ongoing kind of ongoing monitoring or ongoing resolution agreements. The total was $23 million, $23.5 million in settlements in the calendar year 2016. That amount is more than all of the other settlements combined since settlements first started taking place back in 2008-2009. So I think the enforcement issue is a big one. And in fact, one of the things we counsel our clients most on is to not be so worried about an OCR audit. You know, an OCR audit, the audit program has been kind of a start and stop, start and stop mode over the last few years. But the bigger risk is a relatively, I don't want to minimize a breach because all breaches are important, but a relatively small breach, say, of 2,000 records, which leads to an OCR investigation. And during the investigation, OCR <laughs> finds out that, oh, a whole lot of other HIPAA things have not been done, like a comprehensive HIPAA risk assessment has not been done in years, if at all. Certain other mandatory requirements of the HIPAA security rule are not in place. And that's what leads to the, the fines or the settlement agreements, you know, getting into the millions of dollars. So something as simple as a lost thumb drive with perhaps 2,000 records on it can lead to a multi-million dollar settlement. Dan, Auxilio recently acquired Synergistic on January 31st, and under the terms of the deal, Synergistic will continue to operate as an independent entity, and Redspin was acquired by Auxilio in 2015. So now, what is your new role? And I understand that Redspin is now part of Synergistic? Right. Well, we're still in the process. It's all, it's all fairly new, So, um, but because Redspin and Synergistic Synergistic have many complementary service areas, uh, particularly in in healthcare. Redspin did a little more work outside of healthcare than Synergistic, but but the work we did in healthcare was very, I I would say at this point, is very complementary. So I think it's going to be a a very happy marriage. Um, I think we bring perhaps some additional technical capabilities that Synergistic would be be looking for anyway, had they been uh, remained independent and uh, been out recruiting people. My new role is is going to continue to do what I'm doing, uh, doing best, which is is focusing on the healthcare market and healthcare security and providing advice and counsel to uh, to our clients. One last question. In terms of security controls from the technology point of view, what would be your advice to healthcare entities and their business associates? If they had to like focus on one thing this year, what would you suggest they be focusing on? At the end of the report, if you get the report, there's there's a list of things that I that I talk about. And some of them are technical and some of them are, are more management-oriented. But it sounds like a broken record. You'd be surprised at the number of, of entities that still fail to conduct accurate and comprehensive risk assessments. And to, and to us, it all begins with a risk assessment because you cannot, 
if you're if you're trying to fix problems in isolation without knowing the kind of the holistic viewpoint of what your what your organization is facing, then you end up with a kind of a Patrick security, which is not what you want. So conduct regular regular and comprehensive security risk assessments. The other thing we're finding more and more is helpful is to recommend adopting a security framework like the NIST CSF because as, as valuable as HIPAA has been in setting that of standards for security, it's not very prescriptive in terms of what to do and cybersecurity frameworks do have you know, kind of, kind of built-in recommendations for people who have been in your shoes before. Those would be two of the things. Probably the last thing would be, this would tie into both problems we've seen in the past as well as protections against ransomware. And that's reviewing your disaster recovery and business continuity plans because that's really where you're going to find out how resilient your organization is against any type of attack. But you'd want to run, you'd want to most assuredly include a, a tabletop exercise which said, okay, let's say we have a ransomware attack. Because that's going to test out whether those business continuity plans are really going to be effective. And it's also going to gain the attention of senior management because the stakes are so high. And the stakes in those cases mean that the operation grinds to a halt. Thanks, Dan. I've been speaking to Dan Berger. I'm Marianne Kolbezak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.